Good morning. Uh, I was a teenage fornicator. Hey, you, uh, you know that old movie, I Was a Teenage Werewolf? Well, there was this old movie. <laughs> and uh, so I'm making my confession to you this morning. This is pretty much the same thing. I was a teenage fornicator. That's an old word, fornication. It means taking that which God designed for marriage, covenant lovemaking, and any activity of the, about that, taking it outside of marriage. That's what fornication means. It used to translate the Greek word porneia in the New Testament. It means taking any of that physical activity outside of wedlock. And it's sinful. And I was, that was me and, and <clears throat> when I was a teenager. I was involved with a girl, and it was a, um, this, very much this, this relationship wasn't good. In the midst of all of that, I became a Christian. And do you know what happened? I kept sinning. The only difference was now it really bothered me. Now I kind of was doing things and I thought, this really is not right. This is not right for me to be doing. But I didn't feel like I could stop. It, it felt like it was beyond me. Even when I didn't want to do it, still did it. I was in the throes of lust. And we're going to read a story, a sad story this morning about lust and a great king whose fall comes about uh, through lust. And mercifully, it it's, doesn't give a lot of details, doesn't dwell on it, it's not, uh, doesn't uh, give it any kind of glory, uh, but it tells us a story. And it tells us a story of a king who is so blessed and at the peak of his power and then falls. And as we think about this, I want to, put, I want to ask you to put your own desires, as you, as you hear the story read, up against the story. There, there are a number of things that we could be kind of grabbed by, inordinate desires that we have that we just feel like we don't have control over. Um, for young people today, it's usually, I, know, I find one of the big three, one of the big three I call, it's either fornication or pornography or gender difficulty. So it's what I call the, the, foreign, the porn or the gender torn. It's one of those three. So that might be a difficulty for you, although it might not. There might be other things that you lust after. You could lust after a car. You could lust after a new house. You could lust after a new computer. All sorts of things, even dishes. You know, I was once talking to a woman, and she was kind of confessing to me, and she said, you know, after this long, drawn-out thing, I realized, I was convicted that I had been I had been coveting and lusting after my mother's dishes. There was a set of dishes in her house. And, and I just wanted those dishes more than anything. And, and her confession met in me a blank stare. <laughs> so I was, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, that is not lust. But hey, for her, that's what it was. So whatever it is for you, whatever kind of strong desire that possesses you is, is like you just don't feel like you can control. Put it up against the story as we read it. Um, why don't we stand now, and Kimberly will come forth. We had a situation this morning where we ended up with a different version on the slides than in the bulletin. We decided to go with the slides, so it's going to be different from your bulletin if you want to follow along the slides, and she's going to um, you know, take out different sections to make it a little bit more manageable for us, but let's hear. Verse 1. 
This is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and this is the NIV version. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah with the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Continuing into verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Continuing to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took that little ewe lamb that had belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man, and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing this evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck that child down, had struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food from them. On the seventh day, the child died. Continuing to verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and, he, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city, and it will be named after me. So David mastered, mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. Yes, a sad story of a king at the height of his power. Tremendous uh, power that David has at this point in his life. And sadly, this great blessing of God brings him to this point of moral failure. And we looked at this before, didn't we? This is how it often works. That God blesses us so much. It brings us uh, to a point that blessings don't work uh, to, to make us better. It actually sometimes makes us, works to make us worse. And so it is in this case. He makes us kings and queens. He gives us blessings. And it leads us to come to believe what I'm calling this morning the lies of lust. Because for us to be captured by lust, we need to believe certain lies. And what I want to do this morning in this, in this very rich story, I want to focus on those lies that we believe, that David believed in this situation. So these are the lies of lust, three lies of lust that we can see in this passage. First one, lie number one, is that we believe we deserve illicit pleasure. We deserve illicit pleasure. Now, there's enough in this passage to help us see that Bathsheba is not really the one at fault here. But she still suffers greatly from David's sin. But it's David 
who is the sinner. David is the one who comes out on his roof. And, you know, just that picture, this is the, this is the one coming forth on the highest roof in Jerusalem because his roof is higher than anyone else's. And this is the man who sallies forth. And he is a man, you know, you could just see the picture of prestige. He's someone, he can do what he wants. He can take what he wants. And this is the lie that he sort of deserved it, you know? What was he thinking as he walked out on his rooftop? It's been such a hard day. You know, I have such responsibility weighing on me. There is so much that I carry. In a way, I, need, I, I, I deserve a break from righteousness. These are the things that we also feel in the midst of our lust. We kind of deserve a break from righteousness. And there are plenty of advertisements that hasten us along this path, is there not? There are plenty of social media that'll lead us along and convince us of this, of this lie, that we kind of deserve this. After all, we have these special responsibilities. And I read with great disgust different accounts of Ravi Zacharias and his activity before he died. A guy recently died, you know, a famous uh, Christian apologist. And turns out, it came out after he died, that he was taking advantage of women that he had, he had made a, formed a massage parlor, had these women working there, and he was violating these women in, in, in adulterous relationships. It's just, just disgusting to read about. And the women who did talk about it, what they said, what he would say to them, what he said to them was, you know, I'm this international speaker. I have so much resting on me. You know, I need relief. I have so much... So much, I have so much I'm bearing, you know. That, writ large, friends, is the lie that we believe in the midst of lust, that somehow we deserve this illicit pleasure. Have to contradict that to be free of it. Number two, we think that we can handle getting close to sin, we think that we can handle it, getting close to sin. You see in David, uh, in verse 2, he saw. He th we think we can look. We're like the alcoholic who says, you know, I can handle my drinking. I can handle my liquor. But we really can't. And that's the lie, really, that we think that we can. I came to understand this about myself back when I was this teenager in this, in this relationship. And I came to the point, as I said, of wanting to stop and really saying, okay, now I'm going to stop. And I found that I could not. And I really, I really learned something about myself. I remember there was one night I was out in the nighttime, you know, it was sort of this uh, um, dramatic scene where the wind was blowing. I was talking to God in the middle of the darkness and um, I, I made this pledge to God. I said, you know, I don't know anything. I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know about what's going to happen. I don't know about my future. But there's one thing I know. I know this at the very core of my being. This is what I said. I know this at the very core of my being. I will never do this again. Said that. And you know what happened? I did it again. 
I did it again. And it destroyed me because I came to realize who I was, that I did not have power over my actions that I thought I did. And I came to understand myself then that in a way I had, I had never understood myself before. Thought I could be what I wanted to be, thought I could be good, till I really had to try and I could not. You know, that's why sometimes people talk to me about you know, free will. People don't like talking about God's sovereignty and they say, oh, well, you know, you and I, we have free will. It is utterly unconvincing to me. I laugh at people when they say that. I say, yeah, maybe you have free will. I don't have free will, you know. Oh, well, maybe I can decide to, like, lift up my arm here. Oh, and I can decide to put my arm down. Big whoop, you know. You want to know if you have free will? You want to find out if you have free will? Try to do what God wants you to do consistently. Try that. Then come back and tell me you have free will. Free will, what a joke. But that's the lie. So, you know, this is, this is something we have to contradict to break the power of it. And for those of you who are in this struggle, and I know there are some here where you are struggling, so I cannot stop this activity, I cannot stop this lust. This, this is very practical um, guidance for you to contradict this lie. What this means is you take every and all measures that you need to when you are sane for the time when you will not be sane, because you will not be sane at times. That's what Romans uh, 12 says, Romans 13, excuse me. That's what Romans 13 is saying when it says, make no provision for the sinful nature. Make no provision for the sinful nature. That is, you do what you need to when you're sane to, to guard against the times when you're insane. You don't get out a bed in the evening, or you don't stay in bed in the morning. Make every provision. But that's the second lie. Number two, we can handle it. Lie number three. Lie number three, and this is really a deep one, that we believe in, in the midst of lust, that we, that we need the object of our lust to be happy. That's what we believe. We believe that we need what God says we should not have in order to be happy. If you look at Nathan's parable there in verses one through four of chapter 12, we get to chapter 12 and Nathan comes and he gives this, this very powerful pa parable, this story to David. If you look at what he's doing there, he's getting David and us to say to the rich man, right? The rich man, the story who has the traveler come and he has everything. He's so rich, and yet he, he, takes, he takes the ewe lamb of the poor man. What does that make us do? It makes us say to the rich man, what is your problem? Right? Like, you have all that you need. You have been so blessed, yet you want the one thing that you cannot have. That's lust. That's the lie of lust leads us to think that we need this one thing that we don't have in order to be happy. When actually the opposite is true. You know, Proverbs 27 says that the lust of the eyes is like uh, the place of the dead. There's always room for more. 
place of the dead is always open for another customer, you know, to take somebody else into it. Never satisfied. Place of the dead is never satisfied. So lust of the eyes, never satisfied as well. And that's what really is being said in verse 8. You know, we come to chapter 12, verse 8, and it kind of bothers us because um, we read that and it says, and God is speaking through Nathan there, right? And he says, I gave you all these things. I gave you Israel and Judah to be, to be king over and your master's wives. He's talking about Saul's harem for you to have. Is that, is, you think, what, is God saying that he gave? Like, this is the gift of God? No. Based on, you know, the Mosaic covenant and the, and the points of the narrative that we've spoken of before, what's being said here what God is saying is, I did not judge you. I allowed you to do these things and then did not bring judgment on you from them. Just like I allowed, he allowed David to make his son, son's priests and he didn't bring judgment on him than that. He said, even, even with these unrighteously gotten wives, which I allowed in your life, still you are not satisfied, Right? The point of what uh, Nathan's speech here is that even with these unrighteously taken wives, it wasn't enough for you. And that's the problem with, that's the problem with lust. It's never satisfied. And the sooner you recognize that lie, the, the closer you are to breaking its power. Because the truth is, friends, that these things that we think that we want, that God says, no, you should not have, are not the things that make us happy. We believe that they are, and that's the lie we're believing in the moment. But actually, what, what God is saying there in verse 8 is that I would have given you even more. You see that? I would have given you even more. In other words, there were so many more good things that you would have had by denying this illicit pleasure, by not going for this illicit pleasure because it leaves room in, my, in your life for me to bless you. So God is saying, you know, I would have given you so much more. That's, that's what the Spirit says to us. You actually could be happy by saying no to these illicit pleasures instead of believing the lie that you need this one thing to be happy. You need this. To, you need to look in order to be happy. It's the opposite. And what he's saying to David is, if you had just not succumbed, if you had not given in, you would have, ha- you would have known the kingdom of God on earth. But that's the third lie. So, so he believes these lies, the story that we heard, and so he sins. And then, in, the, in God's mercy, he sends Nathan with his parable that enables David to get back in touch with what he's lost. Right? And I like the way Alexander White puts it. He says, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. <laughs> That's right. A very powerful story that, that gets David back in touch with kingship, with who he is, with the Lord, and he repents. It's late. <laughs> he repents kind of late, but he does repent. I mean, he could have not repented, right? He could have, what would be the next step? Just eliminate Nathan. Take Nathan out, you know, and that problem's solved. Could have gone that way, but no. He does respond to the authority of the prophet, and he comes back, and he finally deals with the situation. He finally faces it. 
And so he says, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And that doesn't sound like he's saying much there. And that's why we have Psalm 51. You know, we didn't have room in the bulletin to, to print it, but I encourage you to go read Psalm 51. We have these precious moments where we actually get David's thoughts in certain times in his life. And it's very clear that that, was, that Psalm 51 is an expansion of verse 13 here. That's, what, that's all of the things he said in writing this psalm to God. And that's why it sounds, verse 13, like something that you read in Psalm 51, where, where it says, against you have, have I sinned. Against you only have I sinned. Right? It's kind of precious that we have that comparison for certain moments in David's life. And Psalm 51 is one of them. So if you want to really see David's repentance, it's in Psalm 51. But that may bother us a little bit, right? That when David says, against you have I sinned, or against you only have I sinned, right? What are we thinking? We're thinking, well, I don't know. You kind of sinned against Bathsheba, right? And you sinned against Uriah. And you sinned against Joah. Actually, is there, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone David hasn't sinned against in this situation, right? So you're like, how can you say against you only have I sinned? But that's, this, friends, is actually key. This is key to David's escape. This is key to David's freedom here. Because what we see here in that moment is that he's seeing that sin, not that he hasn't sinned against these other people, but that sin primarily is a matter between him and God. What he's seeing there is, and you can see, he, all he sees at that moment is God. And all these other repercussions and all of these other ways that he has sinned against other people, they come from that sin, that loss of what he had with God. So what he's saying in this verse, and this is key, he's at this place of saying, I want God more than anything else now. When you cry out to God, when you come to that moment of wanting God more than anything, when you, when you understand in, a, in your deepest soul that life is a matter of, what, of you and God and what's going on between you and God, that is a key moment. That's the moment of escape. And so this is, this is how David escapes the greatest lie, the biggest lie of lust at all, of all. And this is what makes David David. Because he escapes the biggest lie. You know what the biggest lie? The biggest lie of all. I mean, these other lies are key in lustful situations. They're always there. Here's the biggest lie of all. That you cannot be clean. This is the biggest lie. For those of you who are struggling, that's the biggest lie that you're believing. That you are trapped forever. That you are just scum. And that's the way it is. It's the biggest lie of all. Now, how does he escape it? Well, if you look, he confesses his guilt, right, in verse 13. And then David is completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. Now, that's a really surprising turn to this story, is it not? How do we know that he is completely forgiven? Well, a lot of different ways, actually. You can see it in his words. You can read Psalm 51, and you can feel a man being forgiven in the midst of that psalm. 
You can feel, you can tell that he knows who he, the one he's dealing with is a God of grace. You can tell from the words that he gives. You can also tell it by his actions. There's this other story now where he starts to fast and pray for the child who's sick, who, who God says, this child's gonna die. And what does he do? He fasts and he prays. Why? Because he says, I know God is a God of grace. Maybe he won't die. I'm gonna beseech him. You see that confidence that he has, it shows his forgiveness. So it's David's words, it's David's actions. It's also the events of the story, right? What happens? In verse five, what does David say? The man who does this must die. You see that in verse five, by his own mouth, David says, the person who's, who's doing it, he should die. And he should die. David should have been executed. But what does Nathan say? Verse 12, excuse me, verse 13. The man must die. What does Nathan say? You shall not die. You shall not die. Not only does he not die, he goes on, verse 24, 25, gets to marry Bathsheba, gets to have Solomon. And I wanted to read to the end of the chapter there, so verses 29 to 31, so we see that God continues to bless him. He gives him victory over the Ammonites, their longtime enemy. They were besieged, Israel, by the Ammonites. And finally, at last, after this, David gets victory over the Ammonites through Joab. And when they take that crown, takes the crown off the king of the Ammonites, they put it on David's head, he becomes the king of kings. What is that, friends? That is forgiveness. In the things that have, not only that, in the way that David is spoken of, as you go through the scriptures following this, like you go to 1 Kings 14, and you have God telling Jeroboam, you have not been like my servant David, you know, who kept my commandments, followed me with his, all, with his whole heart. He did only that which was right in my, in my eyes. And you're like, what? Is this David? The way God talks about him in 1 Kings 14, 2 Kings 14, Revelation 22. And you say, how could David be described this way? Because his sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. So God didn't feel like bringing them up again. That's forgiveness. And he knows it. He is utterly and totally forgiven. Now, I know this is, this is bother, it should be bothersome to you because he did a lot of damage by this. So you're saying, oh, did David get away with this? Did he get away with something here? And actually, no, he didn't get away with it. And you can see it even in this passage. Right? Verse 6. Oh. So David makes this pronouncement, right? And he says, the man who does this should should." should pay back fourfold. He did a fourfold restoration. He's getting that out of the law, Exodus 22, right? There should be fourfold restoration for this kind of theft. And that's actually what happens. That is the grisly truth of what takes place. Because four of David's sons will die. This first son of Bathsheba, then Abnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. Fourfold restoration that comes into his life. And you know, not to mention 
the reverberations of this sin through the tragedy of his family in the things that come come and his own life his very own life what this sin does to him so no he didn't get away with something there this is an important lesson lesson for us god might completely forgive us and he does even if there are still repercussions in our lives whenever we do something that goes against what god says for us to do friends there are going to be repercussions it's always bad and still, you want, actually, you want to know how you, you know you're really forgiven? Is that the repercussions do not hit you as hard. You're not crushed by them because the primary matter between you and God, the restoration with God is accomplished. And so it is with this situation. There are repercussions, but his restoration to God matters more. Matters more to him. So he is not crushed by these disciplines. But still, you're left with this question, probably. Right? How, could he, how could he forgive him so completely? How could that forgiveness be so thorough? He doesn't even want to, God doesn't even really want to bring it up anymore. And can bless him, continue to bless him in his life in the way that he does. How can that be? The answer, friends, actually is in this passage also. There's a lot we could talk about here, but... You just see it in verse 13 and verse 14. And this author, the author of this story, man, I, I'm not sure how much the author understands, but he's teaching a profound truth here. It's very stark. You see verse 14 coming after verse 13, isn't it? Verse 13, you shall not die. Verse 14, the son born to you shall die. See that? Verse 13, you shall not die. Verse 14, the son born to you shall die instead. So David does not die, but the son of David dies instead. And that, that lesson, friends, that stark contrast between verse 13 and verse 14 reverberates through history to us because we are in the same place as David. We do not die. Instead, the son of David dies on our behalf. And the ultimate son of David was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ dying for our lusts is why we do not die and why we have freedom from lust. This is how I got freedom. This is how I became a, a celibate man who lived a celibate life through his 20s, through a lot of his 20s before marriage. Chaste, celibate, chaste life. How did I become that man? By this. By the truth here of verse 13 and 14, by coming to realize that I could not handle my lust, but the son of David dying for me overcame my lusts and conquered it for me, changed me, and set me free from lust. From, so I could tell you, talking about free will, the one, the one 
pet testimony I could give you of one experience of free will is having this truth apply to my life through the Spirit to be able to start to do the things that please God. Have that measure of freedom, and that's freedom, to be able to do what I, want, what I now want. That, friends, is freedom, and it comes through, through being delivered from this biggest lie of all, that we can be clean. So David could repent, unlike Saul, because he knew God would pay his penalty. And we can be clean as well because he was clean for us. And when he rose from the dead, he gave us the power to be clean. So believe this instead of the lies. Take this instead and be clean, be released, be free. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.